So we are still in this character of God series. We may be in it maybe a couple more weeks. I don't know. You could really stick into it for a while, I mean, and, and go on forever when you're trying to really talk about the character of God. And there's a lot that I could have chosen from throughout this series because you just can't cover all of the facets of who God really is. But this morning, uh, I want to speak a message called The Jesus Lens. Because when you talk about the character of God, ultimately you have to read Scripture, you have to look at everything through the lens of Jesus Christ. And we're going to unpack what that means this morning. But if you would, before we, I'm, I'm going to start out in Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read a lot of Scripture as I always do. I know I've been a little bit studious throughout this, uh, throughout this series. But, th but this morning, let's, let's pray together that the Lord would speak to us. Amen. So Father, we just thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I just confess that I need you badly, Lord. I am dependent upon you and your Holy Spirit because, God, I'm just not that smart. But your word is able, God, to bring life. And so I pray that, Spirit of truth, you would speak to our hearts. And, God, you would use these words that are in your, in your Scripture, God, to bring life to us, to bring transformation. And, Lord, I just pray for a spirit of revelation to come to all of us, God, that uh, our hearts and our minds would be open this morning to see you, Lord, for who you are as we look at the face of Jesus Christ, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about the character of God, and here's one of the issues that I always come to when I'm dealing with the character of God. And I think the more you get involved in ministry, uh, the more you start dealing with these questions, because I've had the privilege of, of counseling a lot of different people. And I went through a season in life where I counseled about two or three people every day for a couple of years. And I, I wrote notes and had, and, and, and had notebooks filled of all these, these things that I went through with these people of, of just the stuff that they'd been through. And, and I counseled a lot of people who have went through a lot of pain and suffering. I don't know if you realize it or not, but there's a lot of pain and suffering in this world, isn't there? And people go through stuff and they're broken and they're hurting and they didn't necessarily grow up in church and, and they grow up in, in settings where their parents are abusive or, or maybe they had somebody that hurt them badly. But I started getting questions asked to me like, where, where was God in my suffering? Where was God when somebody killed my mother? I remember counseling one young lady one time and she said to me, and she was so angry when she said it, she said, where was God when I was being raped? And you get questions like that and, and you start to wrestle with the character of God because when people are in deep pain and suffering, they begin to question the character of God. If God is really good, why is this happening? Even worse, if God is really good, why did he cause this to happen to me? And they ask all of these questions and you begin to hear questions like, does God cause hurricanes? Does he cause natural disasters? If he's really in control, why is this world in such a mess? And if everything is already planned, why should we even pray to begin with? You guys ever ask these questions? You ever thought these things? And these things come into people's minds and they begin to question the character and the nature of God. People say, well, why do children get sick? Why do children die? Is God bringing judgment on the earth whenever we see a natural disaster or something like that? Is God the one that is responsible for pain and evil and suffering in the world? And we get all of these questions, but here's what I've come to because I've wrestled with these questions myself. And a lot of times I've even said to people, you know, I just don't know. And sometimes we can give the cliche answer and say, well, you know, God's good. God's good all the time. Praise God. We don't really know how to answer that question, but at least we know he's good. And they're like, well, prove it to me because my life is messed up. And it's broken and I'm hurting and I don't see any goodness anywhere. And they begin to ask these questions and put pressure on me. Now, I got to be honest with you. I can't defend God, nor do I have to defend God. 
because He's God. And He's in control of things at the end of the day. But we have to wrestle with these and we've got to get a biblical worldview to understand what the character of God is really like. And many people have different answers to all of these questions. And they come up with different answers. They have pat answers. They have deep theological answers. But what I have come to believe is that if we're going to understand the character of God and how God views something, we must always, first and foremost, look to Jesus. How does Jesus view this? How does Jesus interpret this? Now, here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 1. I love this, this passage of Scripture. It says, Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. He's saying, you read the Old Covenant? God spoke through us or or through the prophets to us so we could have a greater revelation of who He is. Now, we come to understand that even then, even though the prophets were speaking to them about God, they didn't see God in His fullness. But it says, and now in these final days, He has spoken to to us through His Son. Jesus Christ is what God has to say. Amen. So God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, He created the universe. Now notice this third verse. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. He is the very character of God. You want to know what God's like. You want to know what His character is. You look to Jesus Christ. And one translation says He is the exact representation of His being. There is no difference between God and Christ. They are one and the same. Jesus is the full revelation of God. So whatever revelation you could have gotten in the old covenant, if it doesn't ultimately become Jesus and point to Jesus, it is a wrong revelation of who God is. And He sustains everything by the mighty power of God. Of his command. Colossians 1.15 says it like this. The Son is the image or the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So God gave us ten commandments, and the second commandment that he gave us was, hey, don't make any graven images. Don't make any images that you think look like me, because if you make an image, you will end up making that image look like yourself. You'll make a God that is lustful like you. You'll make a God that is angry like you. You'll make a God that is violent like you, and ultimately your God will become something far different than I actually am, so don't make any images. But if you will wait, I will point you to the image. Matter of fact, I will send my image in my Son, and you can look to him because he is the image of the invisible God. If your God does not look like Christ, then you're not a Christian. Amen. See, we are Christians because we are Christ followers. We believe that God has sent his son to not only die for our sins on the cross, but to give us a full representation of who God really is and what he really looks like. And Jesus said it to the religious people of his day, men that understood the Old Testament front and back. Matter of fact, the Pharisees of that time, they had to memorize the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And he says to them in John 5, 39, he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life and these are the very scriptures that testify about me what he's saying to them is hey listen fellas I know you love the Bible I know you study the Bible but guess what you've studied the Bible till you're blue in the face and yet you don't understand that the scriptures are given you to point to me everything that I read in in the Bible everything that I read in scripture should ultimately point me to Christ and if somehow it points me away from him then I am misinterpreting the entire point of scripture Do you all understand that we don't worship the Bible? Somebody amen me on that, right? 
We believe in the Bible. We preach the Bible because it's the very Word of God. But God has given us His Word to point to Christ so that we can worship God accurately in spirit and in truth. We worship God, and the Word of God helps us to worship Him accurately. Amen. But He says, the Word, the Scripture, it all points to me. And you remember Jesus, whenever He was, he was uh, transfigured before His disciples, He went up on a high mountain. And it says that he was transfigured in a moment of time with Peter, James, and John looking on. And when they looked on, there was a bright light that came to him. He looked like a flash of lightning. I like what it says because he says that it looked like his clothes had been laundered with soap that nobody else had ever had before. He was just bright and shining like it was better than Clorox. You know what I'm talking about? He was white, son. And I mean, it was just bright shining. And they looked on his glory. And when they looked, they saw standing beside him Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law of the Old Testament. Elijah represents the prophets of the Old Testament. And they're talking with Jesus about his death and resurrection, about his crucifixion that's coming up. And Peter's kind of scared to death. He doesn't know what he's doing. He goes up to Jesus. He said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. We're, we're, it's good for us to be here. Let us make some tents for you and Moses and Elijah. And we'll just hang out here forever. I mean, I'm cool with this. We don't need to go down and do ministry. Let's just hang out up here on this mountain with you guys. That's probably what I'd have done. Let's build a tent, take a nap. I mean, let, Let's enjoy this while we can. And all of a sudden, it says, the Bible says, Peter didn't know what he was talking about. And a cloud overshadows them and they're terrified because they see the holiness and the glory of God and the full character of God in that moment. All of a sudden, out of his humanness, the full glory of who Jesus really was was shining. And they heard a voice say to them, this is my beloved son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when they looked up, they saw no man except Jesus only. What God was saying to them is, yes, you have listened to the law and the prophets up to this point, but the law and the prophets and the old covenant was given to ultimately point you to Jesus. And now you're no longer following Moses and the prophets and Elijah because they have brought us to the end result. The full culmination of who I am is now here. This is my son. You listen to him. And they saw no man except Jesus only. You need to see Jesus only. If you want to know the character of God. And so God sent Jesus, this Jesus that we know on a rescue mission for all of creation. Because I want you to go back to the beginning for a minute. When we talk about the suffering that's in the world, we got to understand how this thing started, don't we? Because when God made creation, He made Adam and Eve out of the dust of the earth. And when He created us, He breathed into us the breath of life. And He said, looked at all of it and He said, it's good, it is very good. And he looked at all of his creation and it was filled with the glory of God, radiant with God's presence. Adam and Eve were walking in the cool of the garden in the day in the presence of God, in communion with God, in his peace, in his joy, in his radiance. And they were reflecting the image of God. And as they reflected the image of God in that communion, the earth began to reflect heaven. And it was called Eden, Eden meaning pleasure. It was literally a paradise, free from pain, free from sin, free from suffering, free from violence, free from all of those things in that moment. And in the beginning, what we see is that God gave humans dominion over creation. In the Psalms, it says, The heavens, even the heavens are the Lord's, but He has given the earth to the children of men. He placed them there and he says, you guys are my representatives. You guys are made in my image. You ultimately oversee what is taking place on this world. And he gives them authority and dominion to say, like, you got to protect this, guys. You got to steward this creation. You got to make sure that you reflect me in communion. And this earth begins to reflect heaven more and more. And you'll grow eternally in this. 
Now understand, in the beginning, God's original design did not include sin, suffering, death, and pain. But something happens even though we see that from the outset this is not God's original design. So people will ask, well, if that's not his original design, why did he allow it to happen? Why is there death, evil, and suffering if God is good? It's a good question, isn't it? Why did he let that happen? Why would he allow everything to unfold and go down this terrible path? There's a guy named Philip Yancey. He says this. He says, often when people pose a question like, what good is God? They are asking why God doesn't intervene more directly and with more force. Basically, they're saying, if God is good, how come he didn't stop Hitler from killing six million Jews? If God is good, why doesn't he stop the coronavirus right now and interject and bring it to an end? If God is good, how come all of these things continue to happen and why doesn't he interject with more force and stop it? Why didn't he stop Satan in the beginning? Man, these are good questions, aren't they? Like People ask these questions. And I can't say that I have the exact answer, but I will say that if you read the Old Testament, you see God dealing with more force and getting more intimately involved and causing things to be stopped in a moment of time, yet it did not produce lasting faith in Israel. They continued to fail. They continued to rebel. It didn't change what they were doing at all. And a man named John Tyson, a pastor and a scholar, says this. He says, I don't understand many things about all that happens in the world, but I do believe that I understand this. God constantly leans toward human freedom. See, in the beginning when he created the world, he basically gives delegated authority and dominion to humanity. And love is risky because God is love and he knows this, that if he creates a creation that flows from his love, in order for love to be love, there must be choice. You can't love anything that you are forced to love. You love something because you choose to do so. When you worship God, you worship God because you choose to do so. Now understand that in our fallen state, none of us come to God unless the Spirit draws us. But I'm talking about in the beginning, there was choice. There was human freedom. He says you have a choice between the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Humans have always had a choice in their life. There is an element of human freedom that we all experience and there must be or love is not truly love. But love is risky, isn't it? Some people say, well, I, I don't know. I don't know about bringing a kid into this world because, I mean, it's so messed up. The kid could get hurt. Something could happen. The kid would die. And, and don't get me wrong. When we bring a kid into this world, how many of y'all, you get a little bit scared about what might happen to your kid? I know people dealing with serious anxiety about what might happen to their kids in a broken world like this. But I've never heard one parent say, I'd just rather not have the kid. They're willing to take the risk because love is always worth the risk. You say, well, God saw all this that was going to happen. He knew all this was going to happen. He has perfect foreknowledge. Why would he do it? Because he knows that love is worth the risk. He knows love is worth the risk. And he sees the end from the beginning. He knows where this thing is heading. He knows where it's going to culminate. He knows that all things will ultimately be restored in his perfect plan. But see, in the beginning, Satan entered. And evil was not something that God devised, but it was something that he, he, he allowed to happen in the hearts of, of creatures who had this freedom of choice. And Satan rebelled. He was a beautiful angel, but Lucifer rebelled and he became the adversary because pride was lifted in his heart and he rebelled. He comes into the Garden of Eden and he plants a lie in Adam and Eve. What about? About God's character. Did God really say that? Did he really mean that? 
If God really loved you, He's holding out on you. He doesn't want the best for you. He's keeping you back from what you could be. You could be like God yourself, knowing for yourself good and evil. And here's what you need to understand about Satan and the character of God. In Revelation 13, 6, it talks about the beast who is empowered by Satan. And it says, He opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander His name and His dwelling place and those who live in heaven. In other words, what he's saying is one of the, Satan's favorite things to do in this world is to cause evil, suffering, and death, and destruction, and all of these things. And then he points you to God and says, why did God do that? And he blasphemes God, and he blasphemes his character, and he degrades his character, and he causes other people to blame God. Matter of fact, one of the things that Satan even does is he begins to blaspheme heaven itself. He makes people feel as if heaven is not that great of a thing. And he begins, he makes people question God and his character and his nature every day. It's one of his favorite things that he does. And Adam and Eve, they took the bait. They believed the lie concerning God's goodness. And what happened? Sin entered the world. A curse flooded the world. You see sickness, pain, destruction, and ultimately death as a result of that which entered the world because they were given authority and dominion and Adam and Eve forfeited the authority and dominion over the earth that they had as human beings given the authority in this world. And here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 4. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. See, Jesus three times in the book of John calls Satan the archon of this world. That is the chief ruler. That's what it means. He says Satan is the chief ruler of this world. And if you want to understand why there's so much evil and suffering and, and, and pain going on in the world, it's because humanity has forfeited their authority to Satan who has now taken claim over the world and is causing sin, death, and destruction in mass. He is the one that is blinding the minds of unbelievers so that they don't believe in God's goodness, they don't know God's character, and they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You say, well, that sounds a little bit crazy to me. In Luke chapter 4, if you remember when Jesus comes as a human being to be tempted of the devil, it says, verse 5, that the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Who gave Satan the authority and dominion over the kingdoms of the world? Adam did because it was in his authority and dominion to do so. He forfeited to Satan. Satan becomes, right, the ruler of this system of things. Now, don't get it twisted. God is still sovereign over every single thing. But within the realm of this earth and this creation, He has allowed that element of human freedom where humanity had authority and they forfeited it to Satan. And this is why God had to become a man to get back what man lost in the first place. God could have done anything that He wanted to in order to restore creation. He's God. But He knew that He created a world that was delegated to humanity to steward. And so in order to get back the authority that we lost, He had to take on flesh and blood just as we took on flesh and blood. He had to defeat Satan as the last Adam because Adam failed to do so. Amen. This is a little bit deep, isn't it? But it helps us begin to understand because all of creation was infected by the curse, sin, 
sickness, death, all came in. And if you remember, people's worldviews are different, even in the Old Covenant, because in the book of Job, their worldview, if you remember, when he loses all of his children in one day, and he loses everything that he owns in one day, boils come out on his skin, he gets sick, and when his servant comes, he says, hey, a fire from God out of heaven fell and destroyed your kids. Now, based on that theology, what he's saying is, hey, God killed your kids. He sent a fire down out of heaven. He killed your kids. But if you read the entirety of that book, what it actually teaches is that while God did allow it, Satan was the culprit bringing death and destruction. The Bible teaches that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus Christ has come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Why am I saying that? When we see suffering, death, and destruction in the world, we do not see the work of God. We see the work of Satan. And it's a big difference because we so often tend as human beings to blame God everything. And we say, is God to be blamed for this? And I'm saying, no, God is not to be blamed. Humanity and Satan and the powers of darkness are to be blamed for the destruction that is going on in this world. But couldn't God stop it? Yes, God can do whatever He wants to. He is sovereign. But for whatever reason, He is allowing us to go through this process because we are free will creatures to a degree that have to run this course in order to see the glory of God in the end. I don't understand all the mystery of it. I don't understand why we've got to go through it. But God teaches us that no matter what we go through in this life, in eternity, it will resound more gloriously than you could ever imagine. What we're going through right now has a purpose. It has a design. And see, our faith is not in a God who brings evil and destruction upon people, but our faith is in a God who has come to rescue His entire creation from the absurdity of sin and the forces of evil and ultimately to rescue us from death. This is the God that we believe in. Not a God. See, I, I'm comforted in knowing that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God. I see the face of His enemy because the Scripture says that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now, ultimately, God is over all of those things. He permits certain things to happen, but it is because we live in a broken world in which we have forfeited all of these things. And people will still say, but if God is in control still yet, Clay, why, why all this mess? And I need you to understand that God is in control. Nothing happens outside of his knowledge. Nothing happens outside of his permission. God is ultimately sovereign over everything. But see, we don't see God's sovereignty in the sense that he is actually controlling every move that I make. We, we don't see God's sovereignty in his coercion or his almighty power so much as we see God's sovereignty in his wisdom. When we, when we say that God is sovereign, what we mean to say there's three types of sovereignty of God. When He's in control of all things, He is sovereign in the sense that He is sustainingly sovereign, right? That means that there ain't nothing happens on this earth that ultimately He's not behind. He holds all things together, right? He holds everything together. If He were to lift His hand for a moment, this world would just spiral into a mess and chaos, he is concurrently sovereign, which means that there is no decision that you and I make that ultimately He doesn't grant us the ability to make it. If He didn't put the breath in our lungs, we could not make any decision whatsoever. And then He is governing sovereign, which means, and I, and I love this one because it's beautiful, because here's what it means. It means that even though He has allowed humans an element of freedom, there is no terrible choices that can be made that He's, not, that he's just taken by surprise and said, well, I didn't really account for that. 
No, God accounted for every evil decision, every bad decision, every choice. Because I don't know about you, but I made some bad choices. But God is so sovereign that he can take my bad choices and weave them into his ultimate plan and land them at the consummation of human history when he restores and heals all things. And that's the God that we worship, not a God who causes evil, but a God who redeems evil and has a plan to bring restoration to everything. Amen. I'm more excited than you are this morning about it, I guess. He works all things according to the counsel of His ultimate will. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And what that means, man, that's a good verse because it means that no matter what we go through, no matter the suffering and the pain that we experience in life, God will use it. Does He cause it? I don't believe that He causes evil on anyone because there is no evil in Him. There's no darkness in Him. But when we experience those things, He says, I can use those for my glory and bring them to a desirable end. I can work it for good in your life and I will work it for good because I am sovereign over all things. And that's what he is saying. So all things are not good and all things are not God, but God is able to move in all things. And some people say, well, you know, in, the, in, in my greatest pain, I can tell that God brought that pain on me because it worked something in me. Can I tell you that sin and the work of Satan brought pain in your life, but God is the one who comes and meets you in that pain. Will he use pain? If God didn't use pain, we'd be in a bind. If God didn't use suffering, we will be in a bind. But see, that's where he reveals his goodness because even though we are... If God was not in this thing working and moving in it, son, we would be far worse off than we currently are. But he's moving and he's working in it. And he's saying, I know you're going through some stuff, but there's nothing that will pass through my hand. Even with Job, Job ultimately, God used those things to open his eyes to things that he'd never seen about God before. And he restored double to him and everything that he lost. And ultimately, he showed him a greater revelation of who he was. Because let me tell you something that's greater than your pain and suffering at the end of this life, and that is knowing God. Because one day all this is going to be passed. One day all this is going to be gone and we're going to see him face to face. And somebody said, well, what about God's will? Maybe it's just God's will. Maybe it's just God's will that I continue to live in sin. Maybe it's just God's will that I get, you know, hired a kite this evening. Maybe it's just God's will. And here's what I want you to understand about that. Is that, again, nothing happens outside of God's knowledge or position, but that does not mean that He is causing evil to happen. We cannot argue and say that it's God's will that I walk out of these doors and murder somebody today. God's will is for me to be filled with the Spirit of God to love, to demonstrate Jesus Christ in the earth. Jesus said it like this. He actually taught us to pray, Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What he's saying is we need to pray for God's will to be done and not Satan's will to be done. We need to pray for the powers of darkness and the kingdom of darkness to be destroyed and for God's kingdom to invade the earth so that the earth looks more like heaven, which was our original design, which was our original stewardship, which was our original mandate. Amen. He's saying you need to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so this kingdom that comes, Jesus teaches us that this earth was designed to reflect the kingdom of heaven. We lost that. We forfeited that. And the kingdom of darkness began to invade this earth. It crippled this earth. It's up under a curse. And you could argue that most of what you see happening in the earth, even though God's overarching will is over it all, 
Most of what you see happening in people's life is not God's will. It is Satan's will. You understand this? Hell and heaven are both at work in this middle ground. And we are to come into, we are to renounce the powers of darkness and by the Spirit of God being able to come into agreement with the kingdom of heaven and say, we're going to fight for the kingdom of heaven in this reality. And so there's, there's two wheels in Scripture in the Greek language. I know y'all, I got to teach you at least some Greek every week, right? By the time we're done, we'll be able to have fluent conversation in Greek. You come in here, this will be a Greek Orthodox church. But two Greek words, right, for, the, God, for God's will. One is boulamai. Say that right quick, boulamai. I just wanted you to say it. <laughs> but this is his will that is absolute overruling and directive. There ain't nothing you can do about this will. Jesus is coming back and all of history will be consummated in his return. And you can vote yes or you can vote no and it ain't going to change it. It is going to happen. But there is another aspect of his will, and it's a different word. There's actually a few different words for God's will in, in Greek. The other one is thalo, and there's a different form of that, a variable of it, a variative of it. That's thalema. But this means to will, be willing, to wish or desire. And it commonly refers to the Lord extending his best offer or greatest desire that requires our participation and co-laboring with him for it to be done in our lives. He's saying, you can, you'd be astonished at what my will actually is for your life, but you have to come into agreement with me for that will to take place in your life. Now, I already know the decisions that you're going to make, and I can weave your worst decisions into my bulamai, into my ultimate directive will, but right now you've got a choice, you've got a decision to make whether or not you're going to walk with me and come into agreement with my kingdom. Amen. Does this make good sense to you? Romans 12, 2, this is why he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He's saying you need to get your mind renewed and not allow this world to teach you what the will of the world and the will of Satan is, but you need to renew your mind according to the word of God so that you can authenticate what is God's good and acceptable and perfect will for your life. Amen. And see, Jesus is the perfect will of God. And see, Jesus shows up in the middle of a broken world that he comes to rescue. He comes to rescue all of creation. And the Bible says in John 1.18 that no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father he has made him known. He's saying them guys in the Old Testament, Elijah did not fully see God. Moses did not fully see God. But Jesus has come and he has revealed the Father to us. John 14, 9, he says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And to prove, right, that it was our responsibility to rule over the earth in authority as God's image bearers, God became man to get back the authority that we lost. And Jesus Christ went through the same temptations that the first Adam did. And he became the last Adam, defeating sin, defeating Satan, defeating death, and getting the authority back and giving it to us. So that he can say, look, my end goal is to restore this place to original design. That in the end, you're not going to see this suffering, this pain, and this sickness. But we're in the in-between right now. And you've got to come into agreement with me with your life so that we begin to become reflections of heaven in the middle of this darkness, pointing to the coming of a new kingdom. So that when people look at our lives, they are saying that right there is a reflection of what Jesus ultimately wants to do in, in the end. That is the will of God. The will of God 
is that heaven and earth become one, that this kingdom is established. So if we're looking at Jesus, 1 John 3, 8, it says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that He might destroy the works of the devil. That He might Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. So when Jesus shows up, if I want to know how God feels about sin, if I want to know how God feels about natural disasters, if I want to know how God feels about these things, I am going to look to Jesus. Amen. Amen. So how does Jesus deal with sin? Jesus forgives sin. But he does not overlook sin, does he? Jesus goes to the cross. You remember, when, you remember when Jesus is dealing with the woman who was caught in adultery. He says, does no man condemn you? She says, no man, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But see, we would say, but hey, hey, some, that sin has got to be paid for. That sin has got to be punished. And he says, guess what? That sin was paid for. That sin was punished. And it was punished on the cross when I bore her sin for her. That's the reason that I can forgive it. That's the reason that he, he can forgive it because sin was dealt with. But let me, let me help you understand something. People say, well, you know, Jesus ate with sinners. Let me tell you something. Jesus absolutely ate with sinners, but he was not a cultural political puppet. He did not eat with sinners to show you how tolerant and affirming he was. Jesus ate with sinners because he loved them and he was calling them to repentance and a new way of life. That's how he looked at sin. He said, this is destroying you from the inside out and I've come to save you. I'm not eating with you because I want you to continue in your sin and I'm affirming you in your sin. I'm eating with you because I want to show you eternal life and the way to live and I'm calling you to a place of repentance. And when they saw the glory of Jesus Christ, they gladly repented and turned to Him. Amen. Now, not everybody does, obviously. Some people reject Him, but He calls them nonetheless. The next question is, how does Jesus deal with suffering? How does Jesus deal with with sickness. Now suffering is one thing that every single one of us is going to deal with, aren't we? We are appointed to suffering in this world, the Scripture teaches. But the Bible also teaches that Jesus heals all sickness and evil. He casts it out because He is demonstrating the coming kingdom breaking into the world. In Luke 13, here's what it says, verse 10. It says, As Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, Behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. And she was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. I'm going to start calling women woman like that. See how that goes over. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And then he says to the leaders who did not want her healed, So ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years be loose from this bond on the Sabbath. Now notice this. She comes into the synagogue. She comes into the church. And the religious people, rather than wanting her healed, sets back to see whether or not he will heal her on the Sabbath. Lord, save us from that mentality and that attitude. We want people to encounter the living God in all of His fullness. I'm putting no restrictions on what Jesus is capable of doing in your life. If He wants to heal you, we're going to let Him heal you. Amen. Right? We're going to believe that He's going to. Right? And if it doesn't happen, we're going to believe that He's good enough to work it out for good in the long run. 
But we know that Jesus is ultimately over this. And here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, uh, young lady, I'm sorry that you got this infirmity here. That was my father that has placed this on you. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, think of it. This woman has been bound by who? Satan. For 18 years. Jesus always placed the blame of, of evil, of sin, of suffering and destruction and even sickness on Satan. He called it the work of the devil. And what's funny is that religious people would look at Jesus after he would heal somebody or cast devils out and religious people would say, hey, you're doing that by the power of Satan. And he would say, listen boys, don't you understand? A house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan cannot cast out Satan. When you look at the world and you see evil, pain and suffering and bad, it's Satan. When you see good and glory and healing and restoration, it's God. It's very easy. It's very easy. See, I look through the lens of Jesus and I begin to see how He reveals the character of God to us. Who is doing the binding and causing the brokenness in our world? You say, you know, we get in Halloween time and everybody going to see horror films and people demonically possessed and foaming out the mouth. Probably not a great idea to watch yet. That's just a little pastoral advice. Um, but, but I need you to understand that when you're looking for the demonic... You're not looking for somebody just to be foaming out the mouth. You're looking for somebody that's broken, in depression, in anxiety, in fear, enslaved to sinful patterns of behavior. Those are the works of the devil. And Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And he is giving us that mandate to do the same. To bring healing into lives that have been overruled by Satan. I remember when I was, uh, I was down at OBI teaching for a little bit. When I was down there, I remember my al- I used to have terrible allergies, man. When the trees would bloom, anybody know what I'm talking about? Just had awful allergies. And I remember going in to eat one day and them dudes was like, man, what's wrong with you? You're messed up. I said, man, I've got terrible allergies. I said, I don't know why God's made me this way. And the guy just laughed at me and he said, he didn't. Good point, isn't it? He didn't make me that way. Somebody said, well, God made me this way. I was born this way. We were all born under the curse, friends. We were all born as a result of the works of Satan having believed the lies. Humanity, Jesus has come to redeem us from the curse. God designed me as a creation free from sin, but I was born into a sinful fallen world. The way that God really designed me will not be fully seen until I see Him face to face. Then you can look at my life when I'm free from every allergy and all sin and you can say, that's how God made Him. He's no longer infected by the curse. He is fully redeemed. We see now the fullness of God's will coming to its fruition. Amen. We're in the already but the not yet of God's will being at work as far as our lives go. Jesus has bought us redemption, but it is not yet done. And see, this is why in Matthew 8, verse 16 through 17, when Jesus shows up, He looks at sickness in a very specific way. It says, When evening had come, they brought to Him many who were demon-possessed, and He cast out the spirits with a word, and He healed all who were sick that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He Himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Now it's very interesting because you cannot find one place in Scripture where anybody came to Jesus sick or afflicted and He said, Hey, I can't heal you of this one. This one's actually my Father's work. Every single person that came to Jesus, He healed and He set them free. Now, 
Do I understand why we still have sickness and disease and we're still battling and dealing with it? I don't have all the answers for that right now. What I know, again, is that we're in the already but the not yet. There are times that we're going to seek God and we're going to pray and we're going to see the kingdom of heaven break through and people be healed. And we should seek to believe God for those things. But if it does not happen, we put our trust and faith in a God that one day will heal all things. That there's still an end to this thing. So while we're in the here and now, we're going to pray and believe God for miracles and expect Him to move in our situations and never give up hope and never give up faith. But we know that even if death comes, it is not the end. It's not the end. This is the character of God. Jesus shows up saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I always read that when I was younger. When I first became a Christian, I thought what He meant was judgment's coming. I don't know how I got that thinking. But that's what I thought. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're about to be destroyed. I don't know why I believe that. Like, why do we read the Bible that way? He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then he starts revealing what heaven looks like. There's no death in heaven, so he raises the dead. There's no sicknesses in heaven, so he heals the sick. There are no demons in heaven, so he delivers those who are oppressed of the demonic. He says this is the kingdom of heaven. None of the, these things exist there. But again, we're in the already, but the not yet. How does Jesus deal with death? You know, because we come up with a lot of cliche statements with death. We say, well, it was just their time. And while I understand that ultimately we are all appointed once to die, right? And then after this, the judgment. We have an appointment with God. We all do. I understand that. But I would argue to you that there's a greater level and a dimension of this that nobody ultimately dies in their time. Because we were designed originally, to live forever. You understand that? We live in a fallen world where people, it, it, it almost seems that people die at random, doesn't it? Now, I get it that God is overseeing every, all of these things that happen, but you got human ch choice colliding with one another. A man can choose to get drunk and get half wild out on the road today and collide into another vehicle, and it happens suddenly. Did God see it? Did God know that it was going to happen? Can He still bring good out of that? Absolutely, He knew. He's still sovereign over all of those things. But you see this level of human freedom at work where all of these crazy, chaotic things are happening and we just think, well, oh, well, God's just causing all these things to happen. Could you imagine if God was actually the one causing children to be sold into sex trafficking right now? I mean, just wrestle with that in your mind for a moment. Is God the one who causes it? Or is Satan the one that is ultimately behind the brokenness and the pain and the suffering in the world because we believed him, we bought his lie, and Jesus has come on a rec rescue mission to restore these things, to bring healing, to bring God's ultimate will back into play. So we ask that question, how does Jesus deal with death? You remember when there was a young boy and a young girl, he raised them both from the dead. When Lazarus was dead four days, his sister showed up and said, we know that in the end he's going to be raised up at the last day. And Jesus looked at her and said, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the one. And then on the third day, Jesus defeated death. And the Bible actually teaches in Hebrews 2.14 that he destroyed him who had the power of death. That is Satan. Satan had the power of death. And he destroyed him because he entered into death, not deserving death, and blew it up from the inside. Conquering death, revealing that death is not God's desire and plan. Matter of fact, the Bible says that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy of God. Death is an enemy of God. Amen. So how does Jesus deal 
with natural storms and natural disasters. Now, because I remember one time, you know, uh, years back, and I, I, for some reason this sticks in my mind, because there was a hurricane that was coming and hitting Houston. I, this is probably like back in to, to, to 2017 or something. And there was a hurricane hit, hitting Houston. And I remember a, a well-known Bible teacher, and I, it just didn't set well with me. Now, here's the thing. I want to tell you all something first before I even say some of these statements. I'm not the smartest dude in the world. I could very well be wrong about a lot of these things. Somebody amen me, right? It's quite possible. I'm wrestling with the mysterious things of this world and why it's broken and why people have so much suffering, but at the same time still trying to see God in all of these things. But I remember a, a, a hurricane comes and hits Houston, and a Bible teacher says this is the judgment of God against Houston because they have a gay mayor. And my, my, my inner response in my heart was, you know what, there are gay people everywhere. Why didn't the hurricane hit somewhere else? Which leads me to believe, see, Jesus said this. Jesus said, if you remember, he went into Samaria. And he went into Samaria, and all of the people in Samaria rejected him. And his disciples said, hey, I tell you what we'll do, Jesus, since they rejected you. We'll do like Elijah. I got Bible to back it. We'll be like Elijah. We'll call down fire out of heaven and consume these people. And Jesus turned to them. If you read it in Luke 9, 55 and 66, it says that he turned to them and he rebuked them. And when he rebuked them, he says, you don't know what spirit you are of. The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Jesus did not come to destroy gay people. He came to save gay people. Amen. Amen. Look at it from, I mean, let's just look at it from a biblical view. How does Jesus reveal this God? You say, but what about the storm? I mean, I mean, did God send that storm? Well, Jesus... And Mark 4, 35 through 41 shows us a, a, a lens and a picture to look through. And it says, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. And now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. Do you know that in Scripture, if you do a word study, Jesus only rebuked, he rebuked some people sometimes and he rebuked demons quite often. He rebuked a sickness a couple of times and then this one time he literally rebukes a storm. He only rebukes those things that are running contrary to his father's will amen he only rebukes those things that are running contrary to the will of his father and it says and the wind ceased and there was a great calm but he said to them why are you so fearful how is it that you have no faith and they feared exceedingly and said to one another who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him he rebuked the wind as if it was not functioning according to his design he's the one who created the wind and he said, you know what, when you've been under the curse, you got out of your design and I'm rebuking you and I'm telling you, peace, be, be still. Because when Jesus returns, he's going to, with the sword of his mouth, speak and all sin is going to cease. Every storm is going to calm. There's going to be abundance of peace that covers the earth and he's going to speak it with the sword of his mouth and he's demonstrating that there are some things on this earth right now that are functioning outside of original design because of sin and the fall and the curse that are functioning in this world. In Luke 13, verse 1 through 5, it says they were present at that season. 
Some who told him, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. In other words, they were having a big sacrifice and Pilate just decided, you know what? I'm going to kill some of these guys. And they were talking about that. And Jesus answered and said to them, hey, he, he knew what was going on in their hearts and minds. And he said, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Basically, he's saying, you think people suffer because they're evil. And he says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. See, so basically he's talking about a tragedy, just a disaster that happens in a moment of time. And he says, hey, that tower that fell on those 18 people at Siloam, do you think they were worse sinners than other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's saying in a fallen world, there are calamities and there are atrocities that take place. But it does seem right now that they're happening in random events because, listen, it's not God. Sometimes what we see, sadly, is we see good people suffer and we see evil people not suffer a bit. But what Jesus is saying is this. You think they're worse sinners because they're suffering. The reality is, is that y'all are all sinners and you all need salvation and you must all repent because you live in a fallen world and my goal is to restore this one day but unless you turn from this evil world and turn to me you will not experience the restoration amen but his character he's not saying hey yeah my, my, my father come by and just knocked that tower over and killed 18 he was just feeling a little bit upset that day amen when he was in the boat, he didn't say, hey, boys, this storm, my dad sent it. Just hold tight. <laughs> but see, we still experience suffering. And here's the thing. Even if I try to answer these things in my foolish mind, I'm going to get to heaven. The Lord's probably going to rebuke me and be like, son, you did a poor job. <laughs> uh, you tried to tackle a little bit more. You bit off a little bit more than you could chew. But it's all right. You know, we still, we still use you. You know that God uses broken vessels. He uses, if, if he didn't use broken vessels, there wouldn't be nobody to use. And he uses us with all of our foolish minds and our theological systems. And some of us disagree. I probably find 30 people in this room this morning totally disagree with everything that I've said. Amen. But you know what? We still love one another and we put Jesus at the center because we're wrestling through this trying to gain an understanding of how to worship this God correctly. Of how to understand Him. I don't know everything. I'm admitting that I could be wrong about a lot of these things and, and still when you deal with suffering, I'm telling you, what doesn't work is if I sat down with somebody who, had just, who has been raped and experiencing the trauma, well, let me go through this sermon with you real quick. You know how that goes over? Not very well. It doesn't answer the questions because they're still dealing with pain. But nevertheless, in Romans 8, verse 18, here's what God says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Literally all of creation is waiting for all of us to be revealed as we were truly made and designed to be the full manifestation of the children of God. 
Creation longs for it. Because see, if Adam and Eve had stewarded correctly what they were given, creation would not be out of order. It would not be groaning. It would not be broken. It would be in order. But because of the curse, it's no longer and it's waiting for that restoration. It says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And Jesus even says this about creations, right? He says that the earth itself is groaning. Storms and tornadoes and destruction and all of these things is the earth entering deeper into the curse and groaning for the coming of the Lord the same way that you and I look at the news every day and say, this cannot be how it's supposed to be. And we groan within. And when one of our loved ones dies, we groan within because we know this is not how it is supposed to be. There's something that's got to be greater than this. And that groaning within points to the coming of Christ, the return of the Lord when God's will will be fully manifested before our eyes. You see this. And He's working this process out in our lives, but it's crying out. And Jesus says that many of these things are a sign of His coming. And He even says that when you start to see these things happening, men's hearts failing them for fear, the waves roaring, and all of these terrible tragedies happening, He said, when you begin to see earthquakes and the earth seemingly just breaking down around you, He said, lift up your head because your redemption is drawing near. I'm coming not to destroy things. I'm coming to save things. The world is passing away. We're not to be weighed down and caught up in all of these things. And we're not to have a passive and an escapist mentality because we know that Jesus is coming back. And here's, here's my last point. How did Jesus view the church in all of this? Because we see this suffering, we see this pain, and we see how did Jesus deal with sin? How did Jesus deal with suffering and sickness? Jesus forgave sin. He healed all manner of, of sickness and, and He delivered people from suffering. And I know that we still suffer those things, but ultimately that suffering will either be healed in this life or the life to come. And we have that promise in Jesus. We have that hope. How did Jesus view the church in all of this? See, basically, He knew that we would still be in a broken world of people who did not believe the gospel, of people who were still under the curse, of people who were still experiencing suffering. And He gave us this mandate. He said, you are my body in the world and I'm sending you to proclaim the gospel. In Matthew 28, He says, listen, all authority in heaven and earth are now given unto me. He got back the authority that humanity lost and He says, therefore you go now and proclaim the gospel to all the world. We're called to take this gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world, that He has died on the cross for our sins, that He has suffered in our place, that you can be forgiven of your sin and you can have the hope of eternal life. And when we proclaim that gospel, we expect the kingdom of heaven to invade people's lives, to set them free from bondage, to even sometimes heal their broken bodies to raise them up and strengthen them and give them a hope. In John 20, 21, Jesus says to us, He says, As the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. The same mandate that I went out with, I'm sending you out. And in Matthew 16, He says, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you bind in heaven shall be bound on earth. Right? And then He says, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He says, And you are the church upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That means that we are to be, we are sent to destroy the works of the devil the same way that Christ was sent to destroy the works of the devil through the power of the gospel. And he says when you advance, when you move forward, 
the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. Amen? But see, we're in the already not yet. And it's a battle because we believe in the power of God to bring change and sometimes we don't see the change that we pray for. But yet we have a responsibility, folks, to pray, to fast if need be, to believe the Word of God, to proclaim the Word of God, to lay hands on the sick, to believe God for breakthroughs. We have a responsibility, but we live in the already not yet. Because every sickness and every, every healing and every deliverance and even every life is only partial and fragmentary. You know, even Lazarus was raised from the dead, but you know what? He died again. He didn't stay alive forever, but one day his body's going to be raised to a glorified body, and he will live forever. See, God is now suffering with those who suffer, and he's revealing his glory and his goodness through people like you and I who will reflect it. But I want you to understand this. We do not see the character of God in the catastrophe that devastates. We see His nature in those who come to feed, heal, comfort, protect, restore, give hope, and make advancements against the gates of hell, revealing the Father's love and goodness. When a tsunami hits an area, you don't see God in the tsunami. You see God in the people who show up after to bring comfort and healing and restoration. Amen. Consider the character of God because here's the end goal. God's will is moving throughout every single thing that is happening right now and it has an end goal. It is culminating at the end of human history. And here's what Revelation 21, 1 through 5 says. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. That tabernacle was what was established in the Garden of Eden, and He is restoring it once again. And it will be even greater. And it says He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. See, God will not return and simply reveal why he had to make all of this happen. He will destroy it, and he will make all things new the way he originally designed them and wanted them. This is the character of God revealed. Jesus has not come to destroy men's lives. He's not come to destroy men's homes. He's not come to destroy men's marriages. He's not come to destroy men's bodies. He has come to save us. This is the character of a good God. Amen. I want you to bow your heads with me. Because when we think about the character of God, see, this is a God that I can trust in. I, I believe that the God that is revealed to me in Jesus Christ is completely trustworthy. He is worthy of all my worship, all my adoration, all my devotion. And He's worthy of my very life. And He paid for my life. And if you're here this morning and you've not given your life to Jesus, this morning would be a great and an excellent time to do so. So what I want you to do, just as a, as a, as a response of faith, I had a guy last week raise his hand. He said, you know what, when I raised my hand, I began to pray, I felt the burden lift because the Lord was doing something in his heart. And if the Lord's doing something in your heart right now, just as an act of faith, say, I want to follow Jesus, I want to know him, would you raise your hand just up high just as an act of faith? Anybody at all? Anybody at all? 
Amen. For the rest of us, Lord, we just pray right now that you would reveal to us your character in greater measure. Jesus, we want to know you like we have never known you before. And we just pray that you would pull back the veil of any, any part of your character and your nature that we do not see. Lord, would you reveal it to us. Help us to know your ways, God. Help us to not only know and understand your kindness and your goodness and your compassion and your mercy and your love and everything about you, but God, let those characteristics flow through us as you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we surrender to you this morning. And God, we just pray, Jesus, you move through this room. People that need healing, that need deliverance, that need freedom, would you minister to them now, God, in the name of Jesus. Lord, we bless your name and we thank you for your work. It's in your name we pray, amen. Would you stand to your feet? Let's worship the Lord this morning. One last song here. And if you need prayer for anything, you can come to this altar. If you just want to pray alone, you can come to this altar. But I just ask you to respond to the Lord as we worship this morning.